You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Today's scripture comes from Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at His appointed season, He has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. It's so good to be with you. My name is Kevin. If you're visiting with us, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to thank you for joining us. Before we jump into the book of Titus, will you join me in prayer? Father, we know that you are a good God, and you care for us as your people, and you care for us as your church. Lord, I pray for us this morning as we begin this short journey through the book of Titus, God, that you would expand our thinking about what it means to be the people of God, that you would expose some of the wrong thinking maybe we have, but you would even more captivate us with the beautiful vision you have for your people and for your church. I pray that I might faithfully steward your word, and Lord, that we would respond. We would respond in big ways and little ways in our lives personally, in our relationships and community groups. But Lord, I pray that this would be a refining and an inspiring time for us as we look to the future of where you are leading us. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to think about the first time that you stepped foot in a church. Or if you grew up in the church, what What's one of your earliest memories? Maybe you were there, you know, you can't even go back. You've always been a part of the church. Maybe you have kind of this defining moment. Maybe it was this week or last week. It's the first time you stepped foot in a church. I didn't grow up going to church. Your family didn't go very often. Um, but we would go sometimes with extended family. And so I have certain memories. One is the smells of churches that I would go to. They, I felt like every church I went to as a child had really strong, overpowering perfume kind of smell that you would encounter when you would go in there. Uh, my earliest memory, though, uh, was my brother and I, our, our whole family, I have one brother, he's older, and the minister got up to deliver the sermon and I don't know, they said something, maybe they tripped over their words, or they said something that, you know, if you're an 11-year-old, you find particularly funny that other people don't. I don't know exactly what it was, but I started laughing. And then my brother started laughing. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments before where you start laughing and you can't stop. And of course, my parents, who don't go to church, they were like, stop it. And so we, you know, get, get it together, get the composure for a minute, and then we just start bursting out laughing again. And then one of us would calm down, and then the other one would get, get me riled up, my brother would get me riled up, until eventually we had to walk out in the middle of the sermon and just go out and burst in laughter in the lobby, and my parents swore they would never take us to church again after that. 
I'm convinced that that one moment, the rest of my life, anytime there's a major distraction while I'm preaching, I'm convinced it's just payback for that one moment when I was a kid. We all have memories, though. What are the best memories you have in the church? Maybe you met a, your spouse, or you got to see your grandchild dedicated to the Lord, or baptized, or you got married. Maybe it's where you came to faith. What are the the painful memories in the church, because we have those as well. Conflict, maybe you felt let down by the church, felt overlooked, felt hurt, broken relationships. We all know that at its worst, the church, it can be this kind of cauldron of betrayal and self-righteous and hypocrisy and even hatred. The church at its worst can be really, really ugly, but the church at its best is powerful and it's beautiful, and it's the greatest display of the truth and power of the gospel on this earth. So we're starting this new series looking at Paul's letter to Titus, and it's all about God's vision for his church. It's about closing the gap between God's vision and our reality. How do we move more and more into that beautiful and powerful picture of the church that God's given us in his word? And I think this is such a timely book for us to explore together. You know, the COVID winter is lifting. Vaccinations, I read that today. Yeah, we can clap for that. Vaccinations today will be over 50% for U.S. adults will have had at least one shot. Like we're coming out of a very long and hard season. We've all been changed by this past year. And our church has been changed. No one's coming away. No one's going back to life as normal or just as they were. We're all different and the church is different. We've had a lot of people move. We've had a lot of new people come through the door. And it's a perfect moment for us to talk about who we are who God wants us to be, and the purpose he has for us. And so that's, that's my hope as we explore this little book, this little letter that Paul wrote to his friend Titus. And a little background for the letter. Paul and Titus were good friends and co-laborers in the faith. It's likely that Paul actually led Titus to the Lord. And these men, they traveled the world sharing the gospel. And one of the places that God led them to was the island of Crete, which is located in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's right now, it's currently a a part of Greece. And Crete was a very interesting place. It's a pretty big island. Uh, Homer called it a land of a, a thousand cities. There was all sorts of ports because its location made it a really a trading hub. But it was also a pretty wild and violent place. I mean, you kind of have to imagine the Wild West meets pirates of the Caribbean, and you got some idea of what Crete was like. I mean, even in verse 12 in Titus 1, Paul quotes this common saying that was shared around Crete, that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That they were violent, that they were hedonistic, they were known for throwing wild, crazy parties, and there were liars. There was actually a word that was invented, cretinized, which meant that means you're a liar, that you're not telling the truth. 
And so Paul and Titus, they look at that and they don't say, oh, we don't want to go there. Instead, they say, what would happen if the gospel were unleashed on this island? And so they went and they started proclaiming and the gospel started taking root in people's hearts. Lives started being transformed. Churches started emerging. And then God called Paul away. But Paul said, Titus, you got to stay here because, you know, we can't let the inmates run the asylum just yet. Like they're all still kind of growing up and figuring out what the faith is all about. And so he left Titus to raise up leaders and to nurture these churches into maturity. And so in the letter, we actually get to overhear Paul's advice and instructions to Titus and his heart for the local church. And the vision he lays forth in this letter, if you, could, if you can extract it out, it's very powerful and it's beautiful. And today we're just looking at his greeting, his introduction. And it's something that it's tempting to skim when you're reading a letter like this, but we shouldn't skim. Because even in his greeting and in his introduction, Paul reveals a lot about how he understands himself and he understands the mission that God has entrusted to him. And even more, we can look through this and we can see the kind of people and churches that God called Paul to cultivate and to plant. And so from this intro, there are three marks of a beautiful church that I want to talk about with you this morning. Mark number one is a beautiful church is a church that shares a common story. Number two, a beautiful church pursues a common vision. And number three, a beautiful church rests in a common hope. Common story, common vision, common hope. Starting with common story. Paul begins, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to, it's a small word, but a very important word. My purpose, he's saying, as an apostle, as a servant of the Lord, is to further the faith of God's elect. What's Paul all about? Why does he exist? What's his role as an apostle? It's to further the faith of God's elect. And faith here, it's shorthand for believing in Jesus and the message of the gospel. But the language Paul uses here communicates far more than just assenting to certain beliefs or creeds or things like that. The language Paul uses here, it's, it's ancient language when he talks about furthering the faith of God's elect. And it's tempting to go to the question of predestination. And, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when I was a preacher, it's probably where I would go. Let's dive into the mysteries of predestination. But actually, when Paul uses the language elect here, that's deeply biblical language that's rooted in the Old Testament. And what he is saying, what he's, he's identifying is that when we become followers of Christ, we become a part of the people of God, even if we weren't born into the people of God. And we become a part of what I would call the story of God, the story that God has been writing throughout history. See, Paul doesn't just say, I'm a servant and apostle to make converts. He says, no, God is writing a story and I'm here to further the faith of all of those that God is bringing in, inviting into that story. And so when we think about what does it mean to be the church, we don't just agree on certain beliefs. We are all participating 
and a common story that God is writing and has been writing from the beginning and will write through the end of eternity. And I really like the word story as, for, as a way of thinking about this. Because our God's not just a God of the past tense. He's a God of the present and a God of the future. He's actively at work today. And he's bringing about his good purposes. And we all, we all use stories to make sense of our lives. We all, I mean, if you think about when you tell your story, you know, there, there's usually an arc to it to where you got to where you are. My story I grew up in Cincinnati in the 80s, Reagan years. And in my home and in my grandparents' home, there was no greater American in history than Ronald Reagan. And so we were deeply American. America's the greatest nation in the world. We were robust capitalists. If you don't work, you don't eat. And I'm hearing this, you know, when I'm two, three, four. And And whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, these stories that we hear when we're young, they really form us and they form how we see the world and how we make sense of the world. My dad was a teacher and I grew up wanting to be a teacher. My brother became a teacher. I almost became a teacher and I kind of am a teacher. Grew up as Reds fans. I remember in 1991 when they won the World Series, it was probably the greatest moment of my childhood. We grew up Bengals fans, and it took a long time for me to heal from that part of my story. (laughs) It's like, why would you stick with this losing team, this absolute losing club for 20 years? Well, it's just who I am. It's just part of the story. Now, maybe you grew up and you didn't like the story you were born into. Maybe it was a really bad story, and you wanted to write a different story, but you're still thinking in that term that this is who I was, and this is where... I'm going. Stories are how we understand ourselves. They're how we we assign value and make decisions. And what Paul says here is that when we put our faith in Jesus, when God saves us, we, it's not that he erases our story, but he gives us a new and greater story that we live into. It's ancient, it's present, and it's got promises in the future. And if you're new here, I'll walk you through it very quickly. I'll give you the highlights. In the beginning, God created everything, and he created it good, very good. State of perfection and wonder and glory. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said, it's yours, have fun. Eat and run and cultivate this thing. Just don't eat of this one tree. But in their desire to be like God, Adam and Eve rebelled against him. They ate from that tree. And sin, sickness decay and death, alien forces that weren't there at the beginning. They broke into God's good creation. They were unleashed. But God, even in the face of the rebellion, he didn't destroy humanity in in his anger. He didn't abandon us to death. Instead, after our rebellion, the first thing he did is he made a promise that one day Eve would have a child who would come And that child would crush the serpent's head and in doing so, defeat death itself and actually start undoing the power of death. Hundreds of years later, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he said, you're going to be my special people that I'm going to bless. And then through you, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. I'm going to remake humanity through you. Hundreds of years later, God made a promise to a man named David that one of David's 
descendants would be an eternal king who would rule forever with justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so this story is about a good God, about humanity that rebels. And the Old Testament's discouraging, not because of God, but because of us, because of humanity. Because again and again, God does wonderful things. And again and again, people, we're prone to do this. We, we wander, we, we walk away, we go astray. And yet God keeps coming back and he makes promise after promise after promise. He lays forward this vision that all of these alien forces in the world, they're not gonna be here forever. And then the claim of the gospel, the Christian faith, is that all of these promises found their fulfillment and the person of Jesus Christ. He's the long-awaited king who will rule with justice and mercy. He's the blessing of the nations, and he's the one who crushed the serpent's head and defeated death itself when he was crushed on the cross. He's the climax of the story. On the cross, he took our sin and the punishment we deserve so we could be adopted into his family, and then he rose from the grave, proving that death, that alien force, it's not the most powerful force in this world. The life that God gives is. And this Jesus, he's promised that he's coming in to wipe away every tear and that he's gonna make all things new. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, what's Christianity about? That's what Christianity is about. If you're here and you are a Christian, this is your story. And it's my story. It's our story. It's the story that we share. And we have a lot of different Stories. We have different experiences and backgrounds. Some of you grew up rich. Some of you grew up poor. Some of you grew up diehard Republicans, Reagan fans. Some of you grew up diehard Democrats. But what we all share is this, this reality that we're a part of. See, at the core... At its core, the church, it's not a social club, it's not a weekly event, it's not a political action committee or a service organization. It's a diverse community of people who are united by a common faith and a common story that we recognize radically redefines us. And the life of faith and the life of being in the church is allowing yourself to continually be refined by this story. It doesn't do away with your past, your upbringing, but it transcends it. This is where it's challenging. It's challenging because a lot of times we want to bolt Christianity onto our current existence of life, and Jesus will not allow that. And Jesus, when he bids a person to come and follow him, he bids them come and die. He's saying, you got to put it all on the table if you're going to follow me. And there are diehard convictions that you might have had or ways of being in the world that you learned when you were young that are incompatible with me and where I'm taking the universe. And you got to be refined. And so the church, we get together and we're all bringing kind of the past and we're, we're trying to learn what it means to live into this story. And it requires a lot of humility. A lot of humility to say... God, what do you want to change in me? What do you want to change in us? How can we more faithfully live into and represent what you are doing in this world? What I love about Titus, even Paul, the very first verse, Paul, you know, he was once a man who was, he was an elite. He was part of the religious establishment. God saved him. I mean, he, he, 
you go read Paul, and he, he would kind of brags about who he was, like, I was the best Jew that ever lived. I was the most faithful Jew that ever lived. And then Christ came, and he blinded him, and he saved him. And now Paul, his identity is no longer a Hebrew, a Hebrews, a Pharisee. His identity is a servant, a slave of God, and an apostle, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I wonder what convictions, what remnants of your story that you grew up with are still lingering or maybe still superseding the truth of the gospel. A beautiful church is a church where people are saying, this is most important, and this is how we make sense and assign value and make decisions and assign judgments to everything else. Who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's promised to do. Beautiful church shares a common story. A beautiful church also pursues a common vision. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I'll tell you, I've been talking with Pastor Jonathan this week. It feels a little bit like a, a shift in gears going from Matthew, who writes these, you know, more of a narrative style that's really easy to follow. And then you get into Paul and every word is filled with meaning and he crams so much in one sentence that it's easy to get lost. You get to the end of the sentence, you forgot what was at the beginning of the sentence, so you got to go back. And it's really important that we hold, hold this together, hold this phrase together. Paul says, I'm here to further the faith of God's elect, number one, and to further the, their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not just learning some facts so that we can ace a religious exam. It's not just getting a big head. And this is a very important word for churches like ours. Paul warns, actually, that knowledge easily puffs up, can make you prideful and self-righteous, something that you can use, you can weaponize against other people to feel superior. But that doesn't make knowledge bad. It's just, we need to be clear about why are we pursuing knowledge of the truth? And Paul tells us, it's knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, the way to understand that word godliness would be maturity or Christ-likeness. It's a willingness to allow one's whole life to be shaped by the calling and the will of God. And the church... We share a common story, but we're pursuing this common vision. This is the goal in Scripture. The common vision we're pursuing is that Christ would continue to refine us and transform us, and we would be ultimately conformed into his image. And so we learn and we immerse ourselves in truth, not just to gain information, but for the goal of transformation. It's not just that we want to believe a certain way, it's we want to live a certain way. A beautiful church is not just concerned with what they know, but with who they're becoming and how that knowledge is being used to serve who they are becoming. The church, is, it's always been a community of learning. In Acts 2.42, we read about the early church. The early church devoted themselves. What's the first thing they devoted themselves to? Yeah, prayer, apostles' teaching. 
breaking of bread. But right there, apostles teaching. And this devoting themselves to the apostles teaching, that's not the same as saying that the apostles just came and preached the gospel to them over and over again. Although that was sure is part of it. The apostles were men who spent extended time with Jesus. They're the guys who actually got to hear the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and they're scribbling in their notepad. This is so good. I wish I would have brought an audio recorder because I don't want to miss any of this. And they spent all this time with Jesus. And as you know, as we saw in Matthew's gospel, Jesus isn't just concerned with where we go when we die. He's concerned with how we live here and now. And so they would remember and write and they would collect and catalog all of these teachings that Jesus had given them. And then they would go to the church and they would say, we believe this incredible news that God has broken through into the world and that death is not the end and that he is saving a people for himself and that he is committed to transforming us. And then they would get into the details. So how does the gospel inform and transform everything about our lives? How does the gospel speak to our relationships? How does it speak to how we handle conflict? How we show up in our marriage? What kind of promises we make and don't make? How we handle money? What we do with our anxieties and our fears? The early church, they got to sit at the feet of the apostles now, the apostles are with the Lord now, but we still, we can still commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching because we have their letters and their words given to us. And this is Jesus' heart for his church. As Pastor Jonathan preached last week, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the common vision in the church is that whether it's discipleship school, whether it's community group or men's Bible study or women's Bible study or the beautiful feet training that Mo's doing uh, next weekend, the vision, we, we do all of these things in service of growing into and being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the vision we have. And that's the goal that we should have for our lives and the desire, the longing that we want to see come true in everyone's life, that we would continue to be conformed more to his image. And a beautiful church is a church where everyone says, yes, that's what we're after. Because if you, you have agreement on that, it kind of changes everything. Not kind of, it changes everything. But if there's not agreement there, then there's, there's inevitably going to be conflict in the church. I'll tell you, after 15 years of pastoring, one of the most common sources of frustration and conflict in the church, it's when people don't share a common vision, when people aren't pursuing and chasing after the same goal, when they're not rowing in the same direction. If some people think the primary goal of the church is to go and change the world, while others think, no, 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 it's to go and serve the poor, and others think, no, the, the purpose of the church is to give wonderful and uplifting Worship experiences and others, it's, no, the church is about living in intense community with other people. Well, it can be about a lot of those things, and maybe all of those things. But the ultimate vision is that we would continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
And when we see that, then we realize conflict, which is hard but inevitable in life. It's not just, oh, there's conflict in the church, I'm out. Instead, you say, man, I need to step into this conflict because this is how God's going to grow me and change me. When you see needs in the church, you don't say that's their problem. You realize, man, God has given me opportunities right here to continue to grow into the image of his son. When you see the hard stuff in the church, you don't pull back from it, you press into it. Because you know that God is up to something in your life and in the life of your fellow believers. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we get a window into how Paul would do this. He says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. I love that imagery. We didn't deal with you as a boss deals with an employee or as a master would deal with a slave back in the day. We dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And I like those words, and I like the order they're given. It's a good word for us, I think. The beautiful church shares a common vision of growing into maturity and Christ-likeness. Here are three great practices for us. Encouraging, number one. Not criticism, not tearing down. Encouraging, speaking words of life. When you see wonderful things happening in your friend's life, your kid's life, people in your community group, you speak up. You encourage it. Man, that's wonderful. Man, I've grown so much from watching you in your marriage. It's been so helpful. Man, I've learned a ton by watching you parent. People who are, you know, just militant about encouraging one another. Encouraging, comforting. A church is not a place where everyone has to be at their best all the time. It's a place where we can be honest. And so we comfort the downtrodden, the discouraged, the depressed. We don't, we don't snuff out smoldering wicks. And then the last one, urging and exhorting, challenging. Having the courage and the love to tell people, to tell people you're close to, hey, the path you're on is not leading to life because it's not the path of Jesus. And I love you enough that I'm willing to say something really hard to you. And the goal in all of this is that we would present everyone, as Paul says, mature in Christ. So a beautiful church shares a common story, pursues a common vision. And then lastly, a beautiful church rests in a common hope. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time in which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. That's a long, loaded statement that's like a perfect example of you forget what was at the beginning by the time you get to the end of this statement. But Paul is saying, just put it very simply, we are a people of hope. We've always been a people of hope. God has made promises from the beginning. And a lot of those promises are coming true now. I found 
uh, one scholar, N.T. Wright, to be very helpful in understanding this passage. He says that in the minds and imaginations of most first century Jews, there was this belief that history was divided into two ages. You know, the present age and the age to come, which isn't very far off from how a lot of us think about the future. We have now and then we have the end times when Christ returns. Present age and the age to come. This present age, for them and for us, it's filled with frustration and suffering and hardship and toil and death. But in the age to come, everything's going to be different. There'll be no more tears or sickness or suffering. No more death. In the age to come, we will rule with God. And this is the eternal life promised before the beginning of time. But what's fascinating and what was mind-blowing probably for many first-century Jews is Paul actually says, what he's saying here? It's not that the age to come, it's going to be wonderful and just hold on. He's saying that age to come is actually broken in to this present age. It's kind of overlapping with the present age. At his appointed season, in verse 3, he brought to light this hope through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. That when Jesus stepped into this world, he changed everything. And the future broke into the present. Wright continues, he says, Jesus' resurrection was not simply a surprise, happy ending to the story. The story doesn't end in Matthew 28. It was and was bound to be seen as a glorious beginning. It meant that the darkest and strongest power in the world, the power of death itself, had been defeated. If that was true, then a new power, a different sort of power from all others, had been unleashed into the world. It's power of hope, the hope of life that will swallow up death, it's the hope that we can know God and walk with him here and now today. This is the promise for us, but, and it's a promise we need. I mean, this, this idea of hope, we need hope. Our world, our society is a pretty hopeless place. It's a discouraging place. And a beautiful church is a, a community of people who gather together and they say, hey, remember we are a part of something amazing and we have a wonderful and an incredible hope. A hope that transcends the absolute worst things that can happen. My time here, we've, we've only lost a few members to death. But how wonderful is it when fellow believers die to say, but this is sad, but it's not the end. And there is a promise and the glory waiting all of us, waiting for all of us. I'm convicted. I've been convicted as I've been studying this. We need to grow in some hope, y'all. Like, as a church, we have some promises that we need to grow into. And I, I think one of the challenges, when new people come to our church, this is one of the things they'll say. We love how honest it is here. We love how honest you are. And I love that about our church. I love that we're a place that you can come and you don't have to put on the smile. If you want to start cracking up in the middle of the service, you can. People will kind of look at you, but no one's going to judge you too hard. I love that we can come as we are. But I don't want our honesty about our world and our lives, how honest we are, to, to cause us to lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. I want us to be honest but hopeful. 
Because when we lose our grip on the hope we've been giving, given, we no longer groan like Paul tells us to groan, like we're groaning for the new creation. Instead, we just grumble and we complain and we criticize. And God has such a better vision for us. Well, the claim here is that the future age is broken into the present. Our world, it's not a waiting room. We're not just sitting around on our hands waiting for God to, you know, to, to step back up and start doing work again. No, God was active then. He's active now. And actually, the primary way God works in our world right now, you, you know what it is? It's us. It's this church. In a hopeless world, we're a people of profound hope who bring light into the darkness of this world. Like we, in a world where no one can agree on truth, we can say, no, there is truth, and truth has a name, and his name is Jesus, and we are committed to being formed into his image. And in a world where people say, you know, no one can agree on anything, we can say, no, there is a, a wonderful, incredible, but very honest and truthful story. And this is what we're about. This is a beautiful church. And that, I think all of us, we grew up, we've gained them kind of like barnacles of these assumptions and expectations. Well, the church should do this and the church should do that. I hear them all. You know, I've got 1,700 emails I've yet to read in my inbox filled with all of the things the church should be doing. And I'm fine with that, truly. I love constructive criticism. I love feedback of saying, here's how we can be better. Here's some opportunities we can step into. But we've got to start and agree and say, this is what we're ultimately about. We're a part of the wonderful story of God. And we're all desiring to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we're all a people of profound hope. And that's the scorecard we need to measure. If you're visiting with us, if you're looking for a church, gosh, evaluate your time here. Is that happening for you here? And if it's not, is that on you or is that on us? But that's what I want us to be about. That's my hope for us. I'd like to ask you this week, if you're in community group, examine yourselves, talk in the group. Where are you as a group strong? Where are you weak? Where do you want to grow? Examine yourself personally, asking those questions. Maybe ask what expectations have you put on the church that you can release and you can let go? When we have clarity about who God has called us to be, man, I think that's when the church becomes powerful. We have laser focus about what we're after. And when we can do that together, that is beautiful. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that and we celebrate the fact that Jesus doesn't love us by, because of how faithful we are. He loves us because he is faithful, because it's who he is. When we think about sharing in a common story, that's what we're doing here at Communion. The night of his betrayal, he sat down with his disciples and he said, I'm going to do something for you and then billions of people are going to do this after you. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is one of the gifts he's given to us, reminding us and grounding us and the story that he's writing, and the fact that 
I know some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, I don't know if I can even, I even belong in church, if I can be here, be around the church. I've got so much stuff in my life. I am not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. I would say you're in great company with us. Because at its heart, Christianity, it's a religion of grace. It's not about what we've done to climb the ladder to God. It's about the fact that God climbed down the ladder to us and showed us mercy and kindness. And so communion's a time for us to say, thank you, Jesus. Confess our sins and say, we, we want to continue to grow, Lord. Form us more into the image of your son. With that in mind, I'm going to pray. And if you're a believer, I encourage you to take part in the bread and the cup. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.